0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, the Libertarian candidate for U.S. Senate, Ramon Doan. Libertarians are the largest minor party here. Doan says the principle of smaller government benefits people of color, like himself. He says laws often hit people of color first and worst. Take the allegations that ended with George Floyd's killing. That was just a
1: counterfeit bill. But then you look at, you know, legalization of marijuana. African-Americans are prone to be arrested. More often, you know, their their white counterparts for possessing, you know, this drug
0: in different states. Obviously, it's legal here in Colorado. And Doan would like to make it legal everywhere. Then, lessons from an earlier pandemic. Gunnison was pretty famous throughout the
2: nation for having lost practically no one because of a very, very tight quarantine and blockade.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Libertarians are the largest minor party in Colorado, just about 37,000 active registered voters. The party was also founded here in Colorado Springs in 1971. And today, we'll spend some time with the Libertarian candidate for U.S. Senate. That's Ramon Doan of Denver, who wants to unseat incumbent Republican Cory Gardner. Doan is passionate about fairer taxes And how laws affect people of color like himself, Ramon. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You used to be a Republican. Yes, I was. (laughs) That makes you laugh. Why did you leave the GOP?
1: Uh, It wasn't necessarily because of the people in the party. It was the direction where the party was going. I am not necessarily a fan of Trump. Again, I tell people I agree with you know certain things he does, but. More often than not, I'm finding myself disagreeing with a lot of things he's done. And well, Help
0: us understand that. Where would you say you chiefly agree with him and where do you chiefly disagree with Mr. Trump? Mostly in regards to his practices in deregulation. I like to
1: see a lot of barriers removed so that people can actually participate in some of the economic opportunities out there. Give me an example of something he deregulated that you like. Uh, we'll use one of his instances where he wrote into law where people could actually test drugs, like people that were sick. Uh, I can't remember the name of the law, but it was kind of like a right to life kind of thing where they could test drugs that are currently, you know, under FDA, going through the FDA process,
0: approval process. You're talking here about the Right to Try Act. Correct. You, you, you know,
1: like, know, that like I, I like that. that. That's one of the good laws. Uh, again, that's far and few between
0: <laughs> that I can agree with. Obviously, uh, I can't think of anything else I agree with right now. Help us understand why you felt so strongly about Mr. Trump that you left the Republican Party then. Just as messaging, when people become
1: more divided under your administration, that does not encourage me, nor doesn't encourage too many other people, except for people that follow you, to say, like, A, I can appreciate this man being my president. One of the statements that I like to live by is the fact that I don't have to like you to respect you. At this point in time, it's almost as if people can't respect him, not because they don't like him, just because of the things he says, because of the things he does. And that's not what you're supposed to have with an executive leader. Is some of this what he has said about race in this country, do you think? Uh, Race applies, um, but just his tone of voice where... It seems as if, I'm not saying that he doesn't listen, but it comes off as such. And that unempathetic approach to your constituents or even a certain segment of the population is definitely disheartening.
0: You ran unsuccessfully as a Republican in 2016 for State House. And then in 2018, you were a Libertarian candidate for Congress. Your defeats in those races were by 60 percentage points or more. Mm-hmm. And on Twitter, one listener asks, Why is the Libertarian Party unable to gain any meaningful traction in local races? I think it's because of media
1: attention as well. Uh, Typically, when Libertarians, just our motto is live and let live. I'm not necessarily saying that we want to participate in government roles. I actually work for the government. So I guess I'm an anomaly when it comes to the party.
0: Yeah, so a libertarian who has, who has a government job, which we'll talk about in a bit. But So wait, you're saying that it, there's not enough media coverage, that's why you don't win? I would say that's that's a part of it. Uh, just lack of desire, you know, to actually
1: participate in those activities is another. And but the
0: libertarian candidates the, themselves don't want to participate?
1: If we are able to convince... Someone or someone who is affiliated with the Libertarian Party decides to run in that race. If it is nonpartisan, we do actually have, you know, some people who are elected. We have an elected official in Commerce City. Uh, we've had an elected official, uh, David Black in Sheridan. So we have people that get elected. It's just...
0: Nobody knows. <laughs> and that, that's pretty much it. You're saying because these are nonpartisan races, non-partisan they fly races. under the radar. But let me throw in these sentiments from Travis Clemvin of Morrison, who sees a pattern with third party candidates, quoting here, running for higher and higher office without putting in the groundwork of minor political office. I mean, your own trajectory is that you lose the smaller races and you keep going to bigger races. How do you respond to that? And
1: that is true. And that is to gain more publicity because as of right now, I've gained more followers. I've gained, you know, more trajectory when you're seen on a wider scale. You know, you increase the scope of how people can see you, then more people pay attention to you. And then later on. To what end? Yeah. What? Uh, to what end? I'm not going to say I'm a run for president or anything. That's definitely not a, a desired goal. As of right now, let's say I was to run for a lower seat, we'll say next three years. I'm, I am a native of Denver, so let's say I was to run for city council. Now that I actually have some people paying attention and listening to me, whereas before they wouldn't have because of that partisan label, they say, oh, look, mm. the Libertarian, I'm a, I'm a pass you by. Where now- you, you
0: go big to go small. Go big to is go that, small. <laughs> is, is, am I saying that right? Okay. Yeah. So, indeed, you're a libertarian working in state government. This is even better. In taxation, <laughs> Yes, you're an analyst at the Colorado Department of Revenue. How does that shape your view of taxes? Uh, it allows me to understand it a whole
1: lot clearer. I'm not one of the libertarians that's anti-government. That's not me. And when I go out and talk to people, they say, oh, like, you're purely against government, I'm like, no, that is not my viewpoint. And that's not a lot of viewpoints within the Libertarian Party. You're saying that's the
0: perception. Perception. And you think it misses something. Yeah, it misses something. But how does your work at the Department of Revenue shape your view of of taxes? And and do you think that taxes should change? Yes, I I would like taxes
1: to be more equitable. Uh, If you ever have an opportunity to, and if you need to go to sleep, a good way to help you do so would be to read Title 39 of the Colorado Revised Statutes. And you can see all of the extra revenue generations or the credits to deductions that are applied in there. And it's amazing where taxes are supposed to create economic incubators. And if you look at some of those things, And I'm not going to, you know, go too far in detail because I did take time off for work to do this. So I don't want to piss my bosses off. (laughs) But you look at those and just ask yourself one question. Do you think that those actually create economic opportunities for those around you? If the answer is yes, then, you know, continue to vote for your elected officials to promote those bills. If the answer is no, then you should really start to take a hard look at what policies are actually being promoted rather than just to pandering, you know, come election time.
0: So I hear you saying that there are loopholes, at least in state tax law, and that you think those are related to special interests. Do you think that's true? Yes. To put it simply, yes. Okay. What about federal taxation? And, and what does it mean then to make taxes more equitable?
1: It's uh, to eliminate some of those loopholes. I, I am an advocate for, you know, lower taxation, because I would like to see the government become more efficient in the way it manages, you know, its money. And that does come from the elected officials when they go through budgets. So, for example, if you look at uh, federal taxes, when I was a tax preparer and I started, you know, work doing taxes for H&R
0: Block when I was 18. That was your uh, job as a teen?
1: 18. H&R Block?
0: Yep, wow. I started I'm impressed well. as someone who <laughs> would not have the argument for that. Okay.
1: And you just see like child tax credits, like, okay, children are economic incubators. So presumably not to put a value on a child, but you have to spend money, you know, so your child can live. Go figure. Uh, you just look at some of the other things. Like so maybe, you
0: disagree with that tax credit?
1: No, I, I agree with that tax credit. I agree with that tax credit, but you look at other things like maybe... Uh, I know at one point in time from the state level, there's like an Airstream credit or that really revolves around water rights. How many people have water rights in Colorado? Very few if you're making below $50,000 a year. So that's where you look at those economic opportunities that could be generated through equitable taxation to eliminate some of those loopholes and create more credits that benefit the working class.
0: You say that you'd like taxes to be lower overall. Elliot Goldbaum of Aurora asks how you reconcile the libertarian political philosophy with the urgency of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, So what you think would have happened with no or little government intervention beginning in March, Elliot asks. So that is a very good question.
1: Um, I'm a big advocate for suggesting things to people because when you mandate people do things like, let's say, you know, can't go outside or you start to deem certain workers essential or non-essential, that becomes a very sticky situation, especially when it's on a wide range. So if you look at where Fresno County, Los Animas, uh, Dolores, Saquatch, those population densities are much smaller than Denver County. And you want to allow them to maintain their sovereignty by dictating what they're going to do on their own. So I think a lot of these things should have been mentioned as suggestions.
0: Of course, there are some who will point to what's happening in Europe and say, you know what, when you tell people what to do and you make them do it, the virus disappears more quickly. And when you don't, you get what the United States has. Uh, Americans now banned from traveling to certain places because the virus is so serious here. That is somewhat true. But I did
1: read an article today that the coronavirus is popping up in other areas as well. You look at Hong Kong, uh, where the coronavirus is reappearing, even though they took early action, it can still reemerge. And we don't necessarily know because this is a new virus, how it's going to affect us in the future. And more (laughs) importantly, we don't know if another virus could appear. This is just one pandemic. And considering the fact that we have made many enemies, we don't know if there could be biological warfare or chemical warfare against us. So this could be You're not
0: suggesting that the current pandemic is that, or are you?
1: I'm not suggesting the current pandemic is that. I'm saying that we have to understand that if this is how we're going to handle something, and this is considered mild, I know a lot of people don't consider it mild, but if this is considered mild in regards to historic standards, there could be something much worse in our... Our reaction to this
0: is very poor. Do you think it's been too extreme, the shutdown? I think it's it's been way too extreme. I want to get back to this idea from Elliot who says, how do you square shrinking government right now with the enormous needs the pandemic raises? It is due volunteerism. A lot of the nonprofit
1: organizations, and again, suggesting that businesses reevaluate how they want to stay open. Uh, Something that I was looking at Is creating, again, like a tax credit for maybe like restaurants to provide food for, you know, some government employees and they can write that off so they don't actually have to shut down their business as a whole. They can like, you know, deliver drinks. You know, we have the Uber Eats. We have the DoorDash. We have all of this innovative means to where we can still keep the economy going and still save lives. Because when you begin to deem certain people essential and certain people non-essential, well, what are those non-essential people going to do? Right now, we're giving them
0: unemployment. My guest is the Libertarian candidate for U.S. Senate, Ramon Doan of Denver. You are African-American, and you've said that when a law is created, it hurts us first, and it hurts us the worst. Speaking of people of color, can you give us an example of that? Yes. So
1: just going like off of George Floyd, uh, him losing his life over a counterfeit bill, a lot of people don't understand that when people look at you and systemic racism does exist, it's not necessarily like blatant, you know, somebody's just not going to say, hey, black man, we don't like you. No, no, that's not the case, especially in today's day and age. But Although there's there's still
0: some of that.
1: <laughs> yes, there is. There, but, there, but there. You're, you're speaking to a, a deeper systemic problem. Absolutely. So that was just a counterfeit bill. But then you look at you know legalization of marijuana. African Americans are prone to be arrested more often. You know, than their white counterparts for possessing you know this drug in different states. Obviously, it's legal here in Colorado. But if you were to go to our surrounding neighbors. That is the case. And for us to only consist of 13% of the population nationally,
0: that is a problem. So drug laws you see as being an example of laws unevenly applied to people of color? Yes. You therefore advocate for legalization of marijuana on a federal level? Correct. You grew up in Denver's Montbello neighborhood, and I understand it was a neighbor who showed you that you could be involved in politics, a former lieutenant governor. Tell us about that.
1: Yes. My dad volunteered for his campaign. His name is uh, Joe Rogers, and he didn't live too far from us. Uh, He lived in Montbello. Sadly to say, you know, he's deceased now. He actually ran against uh, a former opponent of mine, Diana DeGette, pretty much when I was six years old. So we're we're talking, (laughs) shoot, over two decades. It's amazing how, like, especially the influence that my father kind of stuck me into politics. And I would have never thought... As I got older, that this would have been a path that I would have taken. But as I started to work for government, as my father, you know, continued to bring me down memory lane of, oh, you remember walking down and we taking pictures for his campaign? I'm like, yeah, yeah. So it is pretty interesting. So he is a role model to me.
0: What's your view of the movement to defund the police?
1: I am very much for it. Um, But the way we should go about defunding them is by removing arbitrary laws that continue to put not only police officers' lives in danger, but the people who they come in contact with. Do you mean to say laws
0: that criminalize too many things?
1: Yes. Like, you know, drugs. The best example is when Denver decriminalized uh, mushrooms. I was a, you know, definite advocate for that. Uh, The Libertarian Party of Colorado definitely backed that initiative And it got passed. And I can assure you, nothing has been in the news about somebody misusing mushrooms since
0: then. What would you apply that to next? I mean, it's easy to say, you know, here's what has already been decriminalized. But what would you change moving forward? I would like to see that for all drugs. Definitely all drugs. uh, I'd like to see the
1: pit bull ban removed uh, because that was vetoed by the mayor. I guess at a federal level, to use mines, I would like to see drugs decriminalized just because when you, the whole reason why drugs were criminalized is for the ideology that it hurts that person and, you know, destroys communities. The fact that you're going to place somebody in jail for hurting themselves to begin with, now you destroy their career, you take away their livelihood. You're hurting them even further rather than getting the help that they actually need.
0: Chrissy Greco of Denver asks what your take is on the federal agent's in Portland, Oregon, this kind of secret police. Uh, What would be his response if such agents were sent to Colorado, Greco asks? Definitely against that,
1: wholeheartedly. When you continue to militarize your police officers and when you actually use federal agents to come after people, that is a police state. And we should be avoiding that at all costs. Because when you can't even... Trust your own citizens. Granted, you know, I'm not a big fan of rioting. I'm not a, I would not like to see any property destroyed. But when you actually come after your own citizens and people can't trust you. And granted, this is this not with Portland. This comes with a Taylor case as well. When it comes to police officers doing no-knock warrants, you can't trust your own citizens. That is definitely a problem, and we need to avoid that at all costs.
0: Do you consider what has just happened in Aurora and what happened previously in Denver? Do you consider those riots?
1: Uh, half and half, yes. In the beginning, there were protests, you know, peaceful assemblies. I definitely accept that. Uh, but when you start to see people destroy a government building, and you say, oh, you know, yeah, we're going to tear down statues, we're going to do all that. I can tell you from a taxation standpoint of view, money is going to go back to fix those things. And when that money has to be reallocated to fix those government buildings, when that money has to be reallocated to, you know, replace those statues, guess what it's taken away from? So in reality, we have to take a different approach. Because if we're going to continue to destroy stuff, Granted, you know, I understand the frustration, I understand the fear, and I understand the anger. But we have to look at
0: the ballot box first. As we've spoken with Colorado voters ahead of the election, it's clear that healthcare is top of mind. And certainly that hasn't changed given the pandemic. The libertarian platform on this issue is really short. We favor a free market healthcare system. Um, yes. <laughs> what does that look like to you?
1: It's... It's really based on people being able to choose their own doctor. Uh, insurance, you know, more insurance companies are able to go out there, less lobbying from those insurance companies. Because right now, it's difficult to compete in that insurance market. You can see more like co-ops. You can see more businesses being able to pay for their employees' health care. There's more opportunities for, you know, you to participate in medicinal Uh, drugs such as, you know, cannabis, uh, possibly even do more research uh, with maybe other, you know, drugs. How how do you get there? That is a true, true, uh, how do we get there? It is due, not necessarily just deregulation, but removing barriers, making sure that some of the laws that currently are in place or how should I put this, uh, the FDA to make sure that they can actually speed through the process and make sure that they have the amount of employees that can actually test these products to make sure that you can have third-party testing if the FDA is not able to do so to test these products and make sure that they can get to the market faster.
0: Do you think that pharmaceuticals and insurance companies are overregulated?
1: Yes and no. I believe there is proper regulation, but when it comes to the, the nuances, all the fine print, yes.
0: We began this conversation with your distaste for Donald Trump. Will, will you be voting for the libertarian candidate for president, Joe Jorgensen? Or would you cast a ballot for Joe Biden to do everything you can to ensure Trump's defeat? I would vote for Joe Jorgensen because that could bring about
1: Donald Trump's defeat. I think when people continue to only see things as black and white, You don't notice that there's the gray area. And when you continue to limit your options, you continue to limit your opportunities. And that's not just in life, but that comes to political adversaries as well. Joe Jorgensen is a woman. She is highly educated. She is a professor at Clemson. And she actually has the acumen to be president of the United States of America. Whereas we go through this notion of identity politics where we're always voting for two old white men. Well, in this election cycle, we literally have two older white gentlemen. There's nothing wrong with older white gentlemen, but if you want to break that narrative, Joe Jorgensen would be your best bet.
0: Thank you for being with us. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Ramon Doan of Denver is the Libertarian candidate for U.S. Senate in Colorado. The Libertarians are the largest minor party in the state with 37,000 active voters. For perspective, the next largest party, the GOP, has 975,000. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a historian's take on political polarization.
3: CPR is committed to covering emerging stories and delving deeply into the details of what's happening now, telling the truth of a story without hype or compromise. This vital news coverage is made possible through community support. If you're already a CPR member, thank you. Your support ensures impartial journalism, statewide coverage, and an informed public. If you're in a position to make a gift or to increase your giving, help keep CPR strong at CPR.org.
0: Colorado Springs is home to one of the last coal plants situated within a U.S. city. The Martin Drake plant is visible from I-25. Now the utility that runs it is shifting towards renewables. Here's KRCC's Abigail Beckman.
3: In recent years, the operations at the Martin Drake Power Plant have slowly switched gears as coal units were retired and new technologies came online. But now, 12 years earlier than originally planned, Colorado Springs Utilities is making moves to close it. Amy Gray is with 350 Colorado, an advocacy group focused on solving the climate crisis. She says the oil and gas industry usually makes the rules. we and outgunned a lot of the time. But this is an example of how people power really works and how a group of people can come together who are like-minded and then advocate for something that they believe in and work hard towards the goal and accomplish it. Drake, as the plant is known locally, has been a prominent part of the Colorado Springs skyline for nearly a century. The tall industrial towers, metal framework, and billowing clouds of steam rise up in the growing downtown area. The plan is to replace the coal-fired power with temporary natural gas generators that will be set up at the site, something Gray says, is rational because a switch from fossil fuels can't come immediately.
2: We were really excited
3: that they decided not to... replace the coal with a gas-fired power plant. Eventually, a 90 percent reduction in carbon emissions is planned with a change to resources, including wind, solar, and battery storage. Scott Harvey serves on the committee that makes policy recommendations to the Colorado Springs Utilities Board, which is also city council. Harvey was careful to say that his opinions don't represent those of the committee, but he agrees with Gray.
2: They see the writing on the wall that You know, our energy future is going to be much different, much cleaner, and employ a lot more different solutions than just burning stuff that has been the pattern of
3: the past. Two board members did vote against the change, including Andy Pico. In an email, he said it's extremely risky to rely on significant technology breakthroughs in battery storage and solar power to make the project happen on a set schedule. Those risks were identified by the Utilities Policy Advisory Committee, but for Scott Harvey, the changes put Colorado Springs in a better position than maintaining the status quo.
2: I would say in the past, Colorado Springs Utilities has done the least it needs to do to not be a really bad-looking entity out there.
3: The goal now is to achieve 80 percent carbon reduction by 2030, as called for under new state rules made last year, and set a course for 90 percent renewable energy generation by 2050. Aram Benyamin is the CEO of Colorado Springs Utilities. Many, including Gray and Harvey, see him as the driving force toward renewables.
2: The public owns this public agency, and the public said what's on their mind as far as what they want to see, what the future holds. So we are basically implementing what we heard the public say that they want to be Uh, looking like 10, 20, 30 years from now.
3: And his reference to the public, that includes employees of Colorado Springs Utilities. Once the changes are finalized at Drake, Benjamin says only four workers will be needed to keep it going. Right now, the facility needs about 80. But per the approved plan, no one will lose their job. The workers will be shifted to other areas of the utility.
2: I think it's a very important distinction that we can do all those things with. The honor of keeping our employees uh, inclusive of their capabilities, of their training and everything.
3: The city plans to demolish the Martin Drake power plant completely by 2025, if not sooner. Benjamin says future uses of the site are still in the works, but the city will likely have to foot the bill for cleanup. Again, Amy Gray with 350 Colorado. Colorado Springs, by doing this thoughtfully and thinking it through and making sure that there's innovation And room for improvement by not building any new fossil fuel infrastructure really shows where our society and where this city is headed. The switch will bring an additional cost to customers, an increase of about 3% over 10 years. But overall, prices for renewable power are dropping. That's projected to make this new path cheaper for Colorado Springs utilities in the long run. As of right now, the Martin Drake Power Plant is one of the last urban sided coal plants in the country. I'm Abigail Beckman.
0: Never before has the state historian come from the Western Slope. But now, after 95 years of the role's existence, that changes with Dwayne Vandenbush. The Western Colorado University history professor has ideas to highlight the other side of the continental divide singing, as we will hear, is part of his plan. Vanden Bush is sworn in as State Historian Saturday, which is Colorado Day, marking statehood. He joined me by phone from Gunnison. And Dwayne, welcome back to the program. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Doing well. You turn 83 in August, which means you've witnessed a lot of important history as it has happened. Do you think that helps uh, as State Historian?
2: You know, I think it really does. You know, I was born during the days of the Great Depression. Don't remember too much about that, obviously, but went through World War II, the Korean War, the space age, and all of the current things that are going on with the coronavirus. So I I think that having lived that long gives you a pretty good perspective of what to expect.
0: Does it make you less fearful of the current moment? That is, if you've seen tumult before, is that comforting? You know, I I think it really
2: does. Uh, One of the things I tell my students here at Western is that their great-grandmothers and great-grandfathers and maybe grandmothers and grandfathers uh, did go through the Great Depression, did go through World War II, and uh, there's a reason why Tom Brokaw referred to them as the greatest generation. So we're going through a coronavirus today. It's very serious, but I don't think it rises to the level of what those people went through when they went through the Great Depression without a safety net and then had to go off and fight in four years uh, during World War
0: II. You take on the mantle of state historian, indeed, at a remarkable time. I mean, sure, the pandemic, also protests for racial justice, a presidential election year. I wonder if part of your job will be to make sure that this moment is properly documented for future generations.
2: You know, I'm sure there are historians that are documenting this big time. Two or three months ago, I wrote an article for the local Crested Butte newspaper on the Spanish pandemic of uh, Spanish flu of 1918 and 1919. And one of the interesting things about that was that Gunnison was pretty famous throughout the nation for having lost practically no one because of a very, very tight quarantine and blockade. Only way in and out of here was by rail at that time. And then in February of 1919, when everybody thought that the Spanish flu was over, the quarantine was lifted and nine people died. And that's one of the perspectives that we've got to keep in mind today, that even after this first wave is over, there's probably going to be a second wave, and we've got to be aware of it and prepare for it.
0: Gunnison, where you live, is proof not to become complacent, I guess. Correct. Meanwhile, of course, statues are being torn down, place names are being changed with the idea that U.S. history hasn't necessarily been inclusive. What do you make of that conversation?
2: You know, one of the things that I hope to do as a state historian is to emphasize diversity. And by that, I mean uh, emphasize a little more the achievements of the Hispanic people, the Afro-American people, the Native Americans, and certainly the immigrants who came in uh, we've got three people from the Council of State Historians working on uh, all of the monuments and statues and so on. And, you know, I think that some of them need to be changed and some of them probably we need to take a closer look at.
0: The, the term Afro-American, is that is that a term you intend to use?
2: Yeah, you know, I want to make sure that I use the word that uh that is applicable, so uh, that's the word I've been using and hopefully will continue to use.
0: Okay. Uh, you
2: know, I'm very aware of Black Lives Matter, and certainly uh, that's something I probably need to talk to people about and, and find out what the word is that they would like to have me use.
0: Uh, can you think of people in history whose story you'd like to elevate t- to that end?
2: Yeah, you know, we have had a great number of black families in Gunnison, and one was an individual who actually was a valet for President Lincoln for a while, and his name was Frederick Shavers, and he's certainly an individual I'd like to highlight, but there were a number of great black families in Gunnison that worked on the railroad, worked in the Levita Hotel, worked as ranchers, worked as cowhands, and they were a a very vital
0: element of the Gunnison country. Speaking in general to telling the history of the Western Slope more as part of Colorado's history, do you see that as a specific mission now that you've been elevated to this position?
2: Well, one of the things I intend to do as the state historian is represent the people, all of the people of Colorado. But uh, being from the Western Slope and the first one to be the state historian after about 95 or 96 years, I certainly want to emphasize our area because I think it's been underrepresented before. If you read some of the history books, you read the whole book, and they may have one chapter on the Western Slope. And yet uh, here is where 70% of the water is in the state of Colorado. Here's where most of the mineral wealth came from. Uh, here's where people go to recreate. We've got a great tourist industry, and it is an area that I think has led in conservation. So I want to highlight all of those.
0: Yeah, water, I know, is particularly important to you as a historian. Of course, it's important to all of us. It's critical for our survival. Tremendously important, but it's also true that water law can be positively Byzantine in the West. How do you tell that story, In a way that you think is compelling.
2: When you look at the word water, everybody said, boy, this is going to be very boring. But, you know, John Wesley Powell said a long time ago in a great paper called Arid Regions of the West, that the history of the American West will be measured in acre feet of water. Everything else put together doesn't equal the value of water in the West, So when we're talking about the doctrine of prior appropriation and we're talking about uh, maybe the public trust doctrine, all of those things are going to be very important. And the only thing, you know, when I first came here in Colorado in 1962, we had 1.7 million people. Now we've got probably about five and a half million. And everybody always asks, you know, what controls growth? And the only thing that controls growth is economics. Uh, When when somebody turns on the tap at Highlands Ranch or Park Meadows or a place like that, they want the water to flow out. And I always like to say that when you are going to build a home out in Highlands Ranch, if somebody says to you, we've got to tell you that when you build the home, water rates are going to be $20,000 a month, that will probably eliminate a lot of people from building homes in that area. And economics is the thing that does it. Uh, everybody would, uh, a lot of people would like to live in Aspen, Colorado, but with the average price of a home, two and a half million, you can't do it. And the same thing with water.
0: Do you think that history can serve as part of the remedy for bitter political polarization today?
2: You know, there's an old saying that uh, the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. And there's another saying that goes something like this, uh, those who do not know history are doomed to make the same mistakes in the future. Now, a lot of people believe that we've got bitter polarization politically today in the United States, and that's probably true, but it's also true that we had bitter polarization many other times throughout the history of the United States. And it's kind of a sign of the times, and I think that today— it's exacerbated by social media and having a lot more forms of communication than we ever did before
0: and so what period of u s history do you look to to say boy we've we've certainly been more divided than this I mean naturally, the Civil war comes to mind, but certainly, during
2: the American Revolution, when hundred thousand Americans out of a small population uh, young men went off to Canada so they wouldn't have to fight in the Revolutionary War against England. Hmm. Uh, The country was divided then over whether or not we ought to revolt from England, and the same thing happened in England. I mean, the war wasn't very popular in England. A lot of people thought that it was crazy for England to oppose their own people. So that was an era. Obviously, the Civil War was an era obviously the years of the 1920s and the 1930s when you first started to see a safety net created by Franklin Roosevelt and and the New Deal when we'd never really had that before. All of those times in history, and you can take a look at the 1930s when a lot of people didn't want to get involved in World War II, the America Firsters led by Charles Lindbergh and Robert McCormick and and people like that. So this is hardly a unique thing that we're going through today.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Dwayne Vandenbush, who is not only the longest-serving professor in Colorado, he soon becomes the new state historian. Your predecessor, University of Colorado Professor William Way. Had an idea last year to create a mobile history resource that would travel around the state and bring history to people, uh, perhaps who who can't visit a history Colorado center, for instance. Is that something you'd like to see completed under your watch?
2: You know, it's something I've talked to Bill about, and uh, exactly, I think it's a great idea. Unfortunately, with the coronavirus right now, I mean that that thing's got to be on hold. One of the things I intend to do, Ryan, is to uh, do a series of 10 podcasts for History Colorado on various topics involving water and railroads and mining and the Western Slope and diversity and so on. I think a mobile history uh, unit would be fantastic if we weren't in this crisis today.
0: Yeah, I suppose a podcast easier to distribute and less prone to spreading the virus. Uh, you have been known to belt out tunes about Colorado. <laughs>
2: I, guess, I guess so, yes. You,
0: you, you want to give us a taste of that? Will you be doing singing in these podcasts?
2: Well, I, I probably will in one or two. One of my favorite uh, songs is Springtime in the Rockies. We're a little beyond spring, but if you want me to, I'll belt out a couple of lines for you. Uh, sh- sure.
0: I'm not... Gosh, I don't know this tune. Is that That's pathetic.
2: Well, I'll give it a go. When it's springtime in the Rockies, I'm coming back to you, little sweetheart of the mountains, with your bonny eyes of blue. Once again, I'll say I love you while the birds sing all the day when it's springtime in the Rockies, in the Rockies far away.
0: Well, thanks so much for being with us. Congratulations on the new kick.
2: Ryan, thank you very much for having me.
0: Dwayne Vandenbush is the longest serving professor in Colorado. And on August 1st, Colorado Day, he becomes the new state historian. Up next, a campaign to take back what was stolen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
4: If I
3: asked you, what was the first state to legalize marijuana? Would you say Colorado or maybe California? Try further down south.
4: I am really proud that I can say that this little state did this. For a long time, they would say other people did it, but they didn't, we did. And it's good to be the OG.
3: (laughs) The fascinating story of legalizing medical marijuana in America's deep south on the latest episode of On Something on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. He's considered
0: one of the greatest athletes of all time, but the International Olympic Committee doesn't remember him that way. The IOC stripped Jim Thorpe of his two gold medals and his records in the 1912 Games for violating amateurism rules. Many say that was motivated by racism. Thorpe was Native American. There is a campaign now to restore him, though, as the sole gold medal champion in that year's decathlon and pentathlon. This movement is called Take Back What Was Stolen. David Bledsoe is with the American Indian College Fund in Denver, which supports this petition. David, welcome back to the show. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me back. So Jim Thorpe was a member of the Fox and Sac Nations in Oklahoma. His athleticism was discovered at a boarding school that assimilated Native American children. As we said, in the 1912 Games, he won the gold in pentathlon and the decathlon. What was it about his performance that makes people call him one of the greatest athletes ever?
4: Well, the fact that he won both uh, in that 1912 Olympic Games, uh, but also because he was uh, a champion in several professional sports, whether that was football, baseball. Uh, As we had talked about before, he even won a ballroom dancing uh, intercollegiate competition when he was at Carlisle Indian School. So his um, athleticism and ability were just remarked upon by everyone from the King of Sweden to uh, Dwight uh, Eisenhower, who actually played against him
0: You have been on the program previously talking about uh, Jim Thorpe and and the victories at the 1912 games like these were not photo finishes. These were very clear victories, right?
4: Yes. Uh, And uh, that was one of the reasons that uh, he is so well regarded, not only among uh, Native American people, but among people who follow sports, Olympic history uh, and the, the evolution of sports over time, especially in the United States.
0: In two of his track events, the 100-meter dash and the 1,500-meter run, Thorpe set records that went unbroken for decades. And many say he faced discrimination at the Olympics. Do you see evidence of that?
4: Yes, um, mainly because when we look at um, the the medals that were taken away from him uh, for supposed non-amateur competition, um This was a common practice among athletes of the time. And the fact that Jim Thorpe was called out for that, had his medals removed, and they were only restored 30 years after his death, uh, was really considered to be a a racial slight more than an actual uh, rule um, breaking.
0: Yeah, just a, a little bit of background here. In 1913 an American newspaper reported that Thorpe had earned a stipend for playing minor league baseball. And at the time, you had to be an amateur to compete at the Olympics. And so the IOC stripped Thorpe of his medals. But you say that it, it was not uncommon for athletes to have dual roles like that. Um, so you, you think this was unevenly applied. Is that what I hear you saying?
4: Right. Um, when you know When you have certain elements that are wanting to um, make an example, uh, and that Jim was, was the one who was unfortunately the victim of that. Uh, it's, it becomes a, a racial issue and for him, um, in his career and all that he was able to accomplish, even, you know, when you look at the, the two, uh, his two competitors that came in second and third, um, when they were, Awarded the medals after um, they were taken from Jim. They said, "No, we don't want it. Ah. You no, know, he he is the winner. His athletic competition uh, was was what was what was deserving."
0: I just want to note that the small, I think it would be fair to call it a stipend that he earned in baseball was really like just to cover his food. Uh, he was not making bank.
4: Right, right. It was really just something for him to continue to compete uh, during the off from you know his college competitions. So, I also know that
0: he faced discrimination at the games themselves. Didn't didn't he have equipment stolen?
4: Yes, uh, before one of the 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 competitions in the decathlon, his shoes were gone. All of a sudden, he he couldn't find them, and he had to actually take shoes out of the trash that he found a mismatched pair. And, of course, performed incredibly well, (laughs) you know, beating everyone by huge margins uh, with, you know, just shoes that he just found laying around.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We are talking about a campaign a a petition called Take Back What Was Stolen uh, with the idea of restoring Olympic glory and recognition to Jim Thorpe. So the International Olympic Committee has taken steps to address this, because back in, I think it was 83, it named Thorpe co-gold medalist and presented his children with replacement medals. But you you don't see that as enough.
4: No, when we talk specifically about representation uh, and about the awards that certain groups and certain people are are bestowed upon... um, We really see the record, uh, the correct record, as being an important part of what not only Native American people see as representative to them, uh, the places that they stand in, whether that would be in sports, in politics, uh, in any space. And having that record be reflective of what the actual truth is, is very important.
0: Do you hear that from young people? I mean, you obviously work with young people at the Native American College Fund.
4: Yeah, at the American Indian College Fund, we're supporting Native students and in institutions throughout the United States, and the things that they face not only um, in the space of you know public opinion or perspective, but also you know facing things like poverty, like uh, suicide rates that are much higher than the average uh, throughout the nation. Those things have a compounding effect. Historical traumas the ways that people are treated and viewed. And so this is just one more step in that path to kind of restore the dignity and respect that not only Jim Thorpe um, deserves, but also any Native person who's seeking excellence in their fields. Do you think that this will
0: be um, an easy path with the Olympic Committee? Do you think that they're receptive to this or is this going to be a pitched battle?
4: Well, I think that as you've seen with You know, many of the things in the public now with Black Lives Matter and other movements, there seems to be more reception to it. Uh, There was a resolution that was introduced by um, Native American uh, representative from New Mexico, Deb Holland, to uh, encourage the IOC to correct the record. And now people are basically able to sign a petition online at uh, brightpathstrong.com to support that move.
0: Bright Path... Uh, Jim Thorpe's given name translates as that, so it's brightpathstrong.com. I just want to say that you know, Jim Thorpe went on to a Hall of Fame career in football, he even served as the first president of what became the National Football League. Uh, someone I think really worth exploring in greater depth. David, thanks for talking to us. Thank you, Ryan. David Bledsoe is with the American Indian College Fund in Denver. And it's supporting the petition to restore Jim Thorpe's sole Olympic record. You can find the petition at brightpathstrong.com. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow me at CPR Warner. The show is at Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.